Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and today is the 26th of November, 2022. This is lecture number 83 in the series on membrane biochemistry. Last time I was just introducing a potential theory I've had for quite a while about how membrane lipid rafts might function post-genetically to control not only the composition of endomembranous systems in the eukaryotic cell, but also the sequence of the membrane. Remember, I'm trying to describe a macromolecular structure, which are the membranes, and of course, the various membranes, including plasma, the peroxisomal membrane, the mitochondrial inner and outer membrane, the nuclear envelope, the Golgi, cis-trans apparatus, endoplasmic reticulum, the endosomal compartments. All of those kinds of membranes are very specific, not only in composition, but also in sequence. That is, there are specific lipids in association with specific polypeptides that have various ornamentation, both the lipids and the polypeptides, including glycosylation, acylation, and prenylation, as well as nucleotide alterations that can occur in some components of both the lipid and the protein, so that there is a transfer of nitrogen and carbon-containing compounds between the two in situ in an endomembranous system. So how do you develop something like that and call it a sequence when it is a dynamic uh, and kinetic event? Now think about other things we sequence. For example, for example, nucleic acids or polypeptides. For nucleic acids, it's a five prime to three prime is the orientation we talk about. And we tell you the specific sequence of a strand of DNA or RNA. Uh, same thing with polypeptides, only here we're talking about amino terminus to carboxy terminus, uh, the product of uh, obviously translation. And again, we're talking about specific amino acids, one following another in a very specific sequential event ontology. So what I'm trying to describe is how membranes, which are also macromolecular structures, just like, not just like, but at that level of definition, like polypeptides and like nucleic acids, DNA and RNA. <clears throat> and that sequence is absolutely essential for the membrane to function correctly. So when you think about membranes that you see published in textbooks, you know, an artist rendition, or even when you see electron micrographs of membranes, and you see, oh, say, staining of the membrane, you can see the expression of certain um, Oh, fluorophores within that membrane. Some of those fluorophores may be connected to uh, lipid moieties, some to uh, carbohydrate, some to uh, amino acid or protein aggregates. And it's one way to study, for example, membrane fluidity, like after alteration of, say, physical um, mediation or even challenge by, um, oh, let's say, an invading microorganism. So we have that kind of ability to to study the changes that occur at a very gross um, 
I should say, uh, low magnification level, even though I'm, I know we're talking about EM, low magnification, we're not really looking at the dynamic of the molecular structure, right? The dynamic and the kinetic dynamic, I mean, the kinetic and the dynamic structure as it is as a sequence within the membrane, right? Because there is a sequence there. So, for example, if you find um, G-protein-coupled receptors in the plasma membrane, those GPCRs aren't, um, shall we say, stochastically arranged in the entire membrane. There are certain regions of the membrane where membrane lipid rafts have docked and brought in that cargo, where there's a great enrichment of a certain GPCR or adenylate cyclase or a enzyme involved in the alteration of polypeptides, such as convertases, right? Or all the enzymes involved in retailering lipids, such as sphingomyelinases. Um, and even enzymes involved in carbohydrate metabolism, such as beta-galactosidases and glucosyl transferases. So think about all those enzymes alone in the membrane. Think about some of the lipids in the membrane that even make up a commonly described uh, bilayer. That structure itself has a sequence. So there are certain components of that membrane that are enriched in certain enzymes and certain receptors, uh, and of course in certain lipid moieties. And that is a product of the lipid membrane raft migration to service that membrane sequence and maintain its fidelity, presumably through the lifespan of the cell, all the way to the end of the cell's fate. So how does that happen? So we can talk about the expression of genes, and we can talk about you know promoter regions, and we can, and we can discuss chromatin retailering, the transcription factors I've just been spending a great deal of time on, the control over that apparatus in terms of what controls transcription of nation messenger RNA, transfer RNA, ribosomal RNA, and then going out into the cytoplasm after trafficking those RNA species into the cytoplasm, either working on polyribosomes within, within the cytosol or working with ribosomes in the endoplasmic reticulum then, and also considering the genetic machinery in the mitochondrion doing similar kite, how does that, all that processing that you get from all the expression of the gene, so the cell is an hepatocyte rather than a cardiomyocyte, for example, right? Or a neuron rather than a microglial cell. Um, how, how do those in individual cellular components maintain their fidelity and integrity as those cell types? Well, it has a tremendous a lot to do with how that gene expression is ultimately arriving as a presentation in the endomembranous system, because that's where all the communication and networking occurs. So that last step there is a tremendous leap to understand how the cell organizes, maintains its bioenergetics, maintains its ability to transduce signals as a card-carrying member of that cell lineage. And that has to do, again, with membrane lipid raft, mobility and motility, and overall trafficking 
throughout the entire lifespan in perpetuity for those cells, any given cell, until the cell reaches its final fate. Now, whether it's necrosis or apoptosis or, um, you know, any other uh, senescence, any other potential fate of the cell after cell division stopped. Okay? All right. Now, with that rather long introduction, which I think was necessary, because I don't know how many people start off with, you know, <laughs> lecture 83 and they've had, they just landed upon authentic biochemistry right now today, but they've been listening to all the previous lectures and all the years of lectures I've been laying this kind of uh, conceptual framework down. So I had to put that down. It's all, that was only eight minutes long. So that's pretty good timing. Obviously, there's much more elaboration I can do, and that's what I'm going to do right now. Here is one of my theories for a potential mechanism that may be at play. Okay? So, assume that, okay, here, here is an example. Assume a receptor protein is present in an intraorganellar or maybe in some other amphipathic, amphibolic, cytoplasmic, aqueous phase. And that you have an organic phase. This is, this is now describing what can be going on in the cell relative to an extraction procedure we use in the laboratory called countercurrent distribution. So the organic phase in an extraction at the lab bench would be something like, say, you would have an aqueous uh, system and you would have something like hexane, right? Two quite dissimilar solvent systems. So when I say organic phase, that's what I'm talking about. So let's say the organic phase of my example is nascent membrane lipid, okay? Because the lipid is going to have a, uh, a decreased density, it will be the included phase. Now, there's a possibility for inversion, as you know. But here in my example, the included phase. And the aqueous is going to be the excluded or more polar phase, right? Because of the shunning of water via the hydrophobic effect. Now, to begin the process, now obviously this process, it has to be initiated, but it's initiated when the cell divides. So it's an ongoing phenomenon until that cell line finally reaches its terminal phase. But let's just say if we're going to turn it on now so I can give this description, to begin this countercurrent distribution, first of all, you have to recognize a few things about cell physiology. You have cytoplasmic streaming in the cell, and you also have organellar buoyancy. Now, add to that dynamic lipogenesis, protein synthesis, along with any post-translational modifications, which we know occur in eukaryotic cells. Now, the vectorial current for the polypeptide is going to be spontaneously present. Now, why am I saying that? Again, because of the hydrophobic effect. So when the initial redistribution of lipid and, say, more aqueous soluble polypeptide is obtained, a fraction of that distribution, okay, we can call it fraction X if you want to, 
and that fraction X of the polypeptide molecular species is going to be present in that aqueous phase that I'm calling excluded or exterior to the system itself. And the system could be vesicular, right? In fact, that's how I envisage it because it, a vesicular trafficking is basically how you start getting membrane lipid drafts. Okay? So the countercurrent mixed phase and the fraction that is not mixed into it, a fraction of the polypeptide not is mixed into it, likewise a fraction of the nascent lipid, which remains in its more hydrophobic compartment, they remain more homogeneous. Homogeneous lipid or homogeneous protein aqueous phases. Okay, and that depends again on the molecular species of the lipid and on the hydrophobicity of the polypeptide. Okay, so you get an intrinsic hydrophobicity or hydrophilicity of each component molecular species. And right now we're just talking lipid protein, right? Now, that is like the beginning of this countercurrent distribution. The final product of countercurrent distribution is going to be the relocation of specific cargoed membrane lipid rafts, which are going to dock at various endomembranous systems and deliver that cargo and then insert into that membrane for as long as it takes for the cargo to redistribute via those same kinds of moments of biophysical alterations based, of course, on the chemical properties of the moieties that are involved, the specific, what I call, molecular species of, say, in my example, polypeptide, which would, of course, be dictated by what? The amino acid sequence. And all that alteration post-translationally, glycosylation, prenylation, acylation, things like that. And then the lipid. And the lipid itself also can be molecularly retailored, which we know it is, via the various endomembranous compartments. And, you know, at the simplest level, think about glycerolipids and sphingolipids where you're swapping out fatty acids, right, at either the one or two position of the glycerol backbone or at that all-important nitrogen amide linkage in the sphingolipid, right? And that's occurring as you are maturing membrane lipid molecular species as this raft ontology is progressing, generating the cell phenotype, the biochemical phenotype, which I'm trying to argue is under no small fate organized around the sequence of the endomembranous system. So after that initial movement, when you're talking about you know, for example, protein synthesis in the endoplasmic reticulum, at the same time, lipogenesis in the ER, uh, as delivered after the mitochondrial interaction, uh, enzymatic interactions that are producing the precursors to what gets further matured as a lipid, say, in the ER, and then in the Golgi, right? Think about gangliosides, for example. So after that initial phase, all of these systems will then be reorganized according to this vector, okay, because it's a vector now generated because you're synthesizing new lipids and new proteins. So there's going to be an origin of synthesis, 
And then there's going to be a destination of deposition. Right? We know this occurs, right? We know that there are multiple locations, geographical locations is what I call them in the cell, where you make polypeptide and you make lipid. And so that's all we're talking about, the origin versus the destination. Okay, so you've generated that now. Now that is going to be generated, all that distribution, countercurrent distribution is going to be generated in the endomembranous or in the more luminal compartments of, say, the luminal compartments of the endoplasmic reticulum, right? So the mechanism that I envisage occurring proceeds with now mixed species phases. And they function now as their own solvent system. So now the more aqueous phase, yeah, whatever is aqueous is going to dissolve in aqueous, but you're going to have amphipanthic molecules in there because you just did all this protein synthesis. And you even might have some lipids that are reasonably aqueous friendly, right? Very short chain fatty acids, for example. Or hyperglycosylated lipids are going to be more amphipathic, right? So you're now you're generating a, a nested set of countercurrent distributed organic and aqueous phases, which are now coalescing into membrane lipid rafts. So this is what I'm talking about here. Now, where did I get all this idea? I got this idea because in the laboratory, we had a technique called countercurrent distribution, which basically is a liquid, liquid, liquid extraction system that allows you to extract via, via two different reasonably immiscible solvents or slightly miscible solvents, extract various stages of hydrophobicity and hydrophobicity. And as you're doing that, the fractions you generate in that process will enhance the extraction all the more because you're generating individual layered, now um, vesicular trafficked rafts, which will themselves act to extract as they move to their various destinations and extract according to the hydrophilus and hydrophobicity of what they are encountering. And the encountering is all very vectorial because it's associated with what's going on in the individual endomembranous compartments. And then that includes all the organelles, you see. So that's how I see it. So ultimately, the fractions will separate out into vesicular complex rafts, and they can aggregate and traffic according to the free energy that's being distributed asymmetrically by the hydrophobic effect, okay? So it's a liquid-liquid countercurrent extraction. And, it's and I'm using the word extraction because you're extracting the components of what will end up in the membrane from their source, from their origin, right? And it's going to be dependent on physical, chemical, and then I'm, now I'm describing biochemical fluctuations of the microenvironment within that cell. Okay? So in this way, endomembranous structural events are produced with stable and relatively uniform composition and sequence, thus rendering cellular 
ontogeny, that is how it can be perpetuated, right? And ontology, right? What we actually find there and what the structure provides as function ultimately. Think hepatocyte versus cardiomyocyte, for example. Okay. Now, all of that I'm describing still links up with a non-stochastic gene expression, but it also allows for epigenetic asymmetry of perpetual microalterations of the endomembranous system, for example, because of auto-oxidation need and the requirement for repair. So that's going to facilitate on-time event biochemical phenomena. And that process will use this distribution to mediate the needs of the cell at a level of autonomy, now mediated, I might even say controlled by the environment, but also the aging of the cells because right? the cells are not going to be the same because they go through an aging process and all the changes in gene expression as you know about are going to be going on here. But also the cooperation of the system as a whole, and that's going to include signaling, coupled reception, and bioenergetic demand. And it's going to end up as a telos, ultimately rewarded by the machinery of what? Cell fate. So I still see all of this, okay, this whole system I'm describing of you, to you. I still see all of this as similar to liquid-liquid extraction, okay? And, and if without having that key component, because it has to be in a liquid phase, um, for just for generating enough surface area for all these interactions to occur in real time. Remember, this isn't a process that can take an hour like it can on the lab bench. These processes are happening oh, at the millisecond level. At the, at, it's got to be somewhere around the millisecond level because we know that cells can rearrange very quickly depending on changes in the environment. When I use the word environment, remember I'm talking about slight changes in ATP levels, slight changes in micro pHs in different compartments, slight changes in the relative concentrations of the solubilized components in the various compartments. That's going to change um, all the time in perpetuity in the cell. And for that to be able to organize it has to be in perpetuity. And so I'm just giving you a description of how you could, you could consider the phenomena as a counter-current distribution doing liquid-liquid phase extraction, right? And another way of looking at it is like a titration too, because titration is also going to occur when you're going to reach a maximum level of hydrophobicity or hydrophilicity within these given organellar fractions, right? Where no more can be obtained. And why would that be? Because the interaction of whatever that membrane lipid raft is will self-limit to where it's located to insert into the sequence that becomes the macromolecular structure, which is the membrane. Right. So as I see it, it's a dynamic. And that's why I said, um, you know, rather uh, with a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, wait till next time motif in my voice. That's why I said at the end of one of the lectures um, earlier in the week 
that you could almost describe this as not being inherited by the genome. Now, I know the argument, and I agree with the argument. Well, all of these proteins and all the lipids that come from enzymatic activity to synthesize them, just talk lipids and proteins right now, but all the other components of the cell are going to be derivative of genes, which code for RNA, which are translated to polypeptide, which function to, to be those proteins, whatever they happen to be, cytoskeletal, let's say, or uh, components of the electron transport chain, or enzymes, which will convert something like acetate to cholesterol, right? So yes, that's true. All that genetic component is necessarily included in this definition. But what is often not considered, how can living systems maintain life? Because if there is only this rigid control of gene expression, even if it's like, you know, at a certain stage of the cell, the, the genes that are expressed are early genes and then middle genes and late genes, like the simple prokaryotic systems people studied, right? Or even like viral replication. But we know that's not the case. Some of the cells in the human body last a long time and they have to change individual cells or individual tissues have to change or reprogram themselves depending on fluctuations of the environment. And by the environment, I mean, go all the way to heterotrophy. We're heterotrophic organisms. We have to obtain essentials from nature. We can't synthesize everything that is required. Think about essential fatty acids, of course. Think about essential amino acids, right? Think about essential vitamins and other nutrients that we don't synthesize. None of our cells have the capability of doing that. We don't even have the genes that would be, if they were expressed, would be able to carry out those biosynthetic pathways. So that means we're heterotrophic. We're dependent on the environment. But then once you think about ingestion, digestion of foodstuffs, the rest of it has to do with metabolism. How do you get those essentials metabolized in all the different cells in the body, in the right stoichiometry, so that those cells function as card-carrying uh, T cells or macrophages or neutrophils uh, or podocytes, right? All the different cells you can imagine, right? Well, that's done because once you have the genetic machinery, and now you have an epigenetic reprogramming of that genetic machinery, which we've been talking about for years now uh, in my lectures, about epigenetic signatures are, are given as alterations because of changes in the microenvironment that are necessary to sustain the living system. That could include alterations in gene expression to, to generate defensive uh, responses, right? Or changes uh, from fatty acid oxidation to glucose oxidation, depending on the levels of molecular oxygen, or depending on hormonal signaling. Those are environmental changes, see? When you know a, a hormone comes knocking at the door, like insulin comes knocking at the door of an adipocyte um, or a muscle cell, that changes those cells' entire interaction with the rest of the system, the system of other cells of like type, of that tissue, the tissues within the organ, and then the organ, of course, homeostatically with the entire organism, right? yet maintaining 
that cellular integrity and fidelity, right? So I, I see this as a very important part of biochemistry that we really have not um, found the right tools, I guess is one way of putting it, to do, to, to first of all, to develop good, solid deductive reasoning using critical judgments and, and looking quantitatively and qualitatively and relationally and modally at these different interactions and coming up with good hypotheses that can be used to be knocked down or stood up because of experiments that are also very carefully crafted using uh, reasoning and using logical judgments so that the experiments will actually read out to data that can then be understood as evidence, ultimately, that can either support or decline the hypothesis that was generated from the earlier reasoning and hypothetical structures, right? And then do the induction. So that's what I'm saying. We need to be able to do all of that um, coherently, rationally, as well as being good chemists, being good uh, physicists, being good biochemists, being good geneticists. And that means knowing our stock and trade, knowing what's in the literature, knowing what is there presented as good evidence and what is not good evidence. Sometimes bad evidence is because the design of the experiment was faulty. And you enable, your ability to be, able, to be able to determine that experiment was designed poorly, you have to have good critical judgment. And you also have to have a fair understanding of the system. And that's what I'm here for. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 26th of November, 2022. Bye for now.